right, welcome to X- XPod 2, the Exponent 2 podcast. Um, we're so excited to have uh, Andrea Radke-Moss. My name is Carol Ann. I'm calling in from Minneapolis. I'm Heather. I'm here in Provo, and I'm so excited, Andrea. I'm so glad to see you. And I'm calling in from Barbados, where it's hey, late at night. Yes. Hey, Mona. Hey, Andrea, Ramona. where are you calling in from tonight? I'm calling in from Rexburg, Idaho. Welcome, welcome. I'm from Boise, so love to have another Idahoan. Oh, where did, my, where... pota- my potato people. Yeah. Big pota- uh-huh. I, didn't, I didn't know what the potato harvest was, though, until college. And they're like, did you have time off to go to the potato harvest? And I was like, what are you talking about? But they're like, everyone just, I guess, picks potatoes. I didn't know about this. I was the city yeah. girl in Boise. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yep. I just want to eat potato chocolate. That's, that's Ooh. about it. Ooh. Oh, um, what's this? What's yeah? I don't know what potato chocolate. Idaho spud. Oh, yep, yep. The like marshmallow. Oh, those, inside. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yes, I know what you're talking about, Ramona. Yep, you're yeah. right. I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know why I didn't close? Is that candy. like the seeds candy one? Yeah, yeah. Like, I think it's, it's like, like Idaho yeah. Candy Company. Yeah, or okay. yeah, it's and Idaho it Candy. Like, and the wrapper, it looks like an actual potato. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Seas has one of those and it's dusted in cocoa powder so mm-hmm. that it's got yes. that dirty. If if you want to get to heaven and instead of de- donating money to the blog and you want to donate an Idaho spud and send it to me. That's, send it oh, to Ramona. That's, that's great. <laughs> we'll wrap it in dry ice so it stays cold. There's also an amazing place called Westside Drive-In in Boise that does a potato made of ice cream and they like dust it with cocoa but it's so it's so strange to like and they like cut it to make it look like a potato so you're like eating it but it's cold and it's ice cream so mm. uh, i drive in in boise if you want another like, idaho treat haha <laughs> uh, andrea we're so excited to have you on the podcast welcome welcome so we first heard about your amazing speech through Nancy Ross and Laurel Thatchell Ulrich, two other Mormon historians who were also in attendance at the Mormon History Association. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, how you got to loving this era of history, and then tell us your hot takes on Mormon History Association. Yeah, yeah thank you. Well, you know, I did my graduate work in women's history, Western women's history, so I consider my graduate degree to be in women of the West, all over the West, not just Utah, not just Mm -hmm. Mormon women. I actually didn't want to ever do Mormon history when I graduated Mm -hmm. with my master's degree. Um, Paul Reeve and I still joke. Mormons of a different color. Is that his book? Religion of a different color. Religion of a different color. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, we were in graduate school together a hundred years ago, but we're like, we're never going to do Mormon history. And now we've ended up both doing Mormon history. I think it happens because you like as a Western women's historian, 19th century, how do I not pull Mormon women's history into that? And then I started getting asked to do stuff. Um, like in, during my PhD, I got asked to do stuff and I went to my first MHA and found some good topics. And so that's kind of how I got my, my foot in the door, my toe in the door, got started. And then I just got pulled in doing more and more stuff and more and more stuff. But my, my dissertation was not exclusively a a Mormon women's topic. It was just a Western, a history of Western women and education. So, Mm -hmm. but I happened to mention some stuff from Utah. Um, so yeah. And then since then I've just gotten pulled into different projects and different projects. And I've just been going to MHA for, um, since the late nineties, early two thousands. Right. 
Yeah. All right. So, Very cool. And now I'm president-elect. I don't know if oh, you heard that. Oh, I didn't know that. Everyone, we have president-elect on the call with us. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah. So is that anyway, you're, so, you're in charge next year of the conference? Is that? What, what, what are, are your after? duties? Okay. The year after. So I'm president-elect, which means, so I'm following David Howlett, who Nancy actually mentioned in her her interview with you. Uh-huh. He's a historian of the community of Christ. Oh. and he's he's great he's he's just really great so matt bowman was is our past president okay he just finished up and then and then david is going to be our president for 2024 and then i will be president for 2025 so that's kind of you know how organizations will cycle people through okay yeah. yay i just mm-hmm. thought they were crazy <laughs> um anyway how did you. i get yeah i started doing suffrage stuff um, and polygamy stuff. Cause you know, you can't do 19th century Mormon women without talking about polygamy right. or suffrage. Right. So that's kind of how I got pulled into all these different projects. And then when I went to BYU after my PhD at the university of Nebraska, I did two years at BYU, um, one year appointments each. And while I was there, I met um, a lot of women who are working on Mormon women's history and some of them had even started this organization called the Mormon Women's History Initiative Team. Mm-hmm. They refer to themselves as MWIT. Uh-huh. Um, and so I became kind of one of their founding members. And they have a breakfast every year at the Mormon History Association Conference. And at the breakfast, the bre- breakfast is designated just for them. And every year they do different things. They have try to have a speaker every year. Um, and so we've had various speakers over the years and I've been a part of choosing some of those speakers. Um, and we tried to bring in a lot more diversity when I was on the board and we've tried to, we've had some conferences and we've done different initiatives and they've worked on suffrage stuff, whatnot. So they were, so Mormon History Association, MHA, I'm just going to call it MHA, was supposed to be in Rochester in 2020. But Mm -hmm. then the pandemic hit. And so it was canceled. It was a big deal because it was the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment. Oh, yeah. And it was the 200th anniversary of Joseph Smith's birth. All Mm -hmm. this, or not his birth of of the first vision. It was all this stuff all piled together. And there was some anniversary associated with Frederick Douglass, but I can't remember what it was, or maybe it wasn't. It was just because Frederick Douglass was from Rochester and so was Susan B. Anthony. Mm -hmm. And because Palmyra was so close to Rochester. So it was kind of like, that's why they chose Rochester, which was a great formula. I mean, it was a really great combination, but then it got canceled. So last year we had to hold it that year. They kind of held it online during the pandemic. And then last year, wherever we were, it gets all mixed up in my head. I think in Snowbird, is that where we were? Nancy was talking about the was ski jumpers. Park City or Snowbird? Yeah, yeah. The, yeah, the 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 snow the ski jumpers, which yeah. was actually kind of fun to watch the ski jumpers. But anyway, right. so then they decided to still hold it in Rochester this year, even though it was um not the what they had originally planned, because everybody wanted to do Rochester because it was right. so cool. Um, but. I thought about it and I, um, I said, you know, wouldn't it be great to have a presentation specifically about Susan B. Anthony and her relationship with the Mormon suffragists? So I kind of approached the MWIT board, Janelle Higby, and I, I was like, 
hey, would you guys be open open to a, a breakfast talk on Susan B. Anthony? And she's like, let me take it up with the board because I'm no longer on the board. I kind of stepped back for a while because of teaching so much at BYU-Idaho and all kinds of stuff. But um, so, yeah, so they said, yeah, we'd love it. They kind of had to check to see what all was on the program to make sure that there was nothing that was kind of doubling up. There was a pre-conference tour that was led by Laurel and Rebecca about the, so then we went to the Susan B. Anthony home and we went to Seneca Falls. And so it was very mm. suffrage oriented. Yeah. Um, but it was more kind of broadly suffrage oriented. And I didn't think I was going to be repeating that. I wanted to specifically focus on Anthony and her relationship with Mormon women. So I just thought that would be kind of a catchy approach. So then I kept thinking like as, as time was going and I was, it was getting closer and closer. I'm like, what am I going to do? Because the whole history of suffrage from 1871, Mormon suffrage from 1872, all the way to statehood in 1895. And then beyond that, I'm like, there's no way I can do that in 45 minutes. Like I can't do a whole history of the suffrage movement. That's ridiculous. I just wanted to focus on Anthony. But there was also so much material, I thought, oh, that's too much, too. So what should I do? So I don't even remember when it came to me. I thought, let's do it in, like, the context of a relationship, how a relationship develops. Mm. And so that's how I prepared my talk around this notion of let's pretend like Susan B. Anthony is dating Mormon the Mormon suffragists <laughs> and kind of amazing, like, kind of like a benignly asexual way, but like just the, like a, how a relationship develops. So then I look back over the whole history of the Mormon suffrage movement and all these little things came out, like popped out like, Oh, this sounds like this. And this sounds like this. And this sounds like this. So, so that's how I approached it anyway. And well, give I us a teaser of, it. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Sounds like you're about to. Oh, well, I wanted to do it more lighthearted because conferences tend to tend to be, even MHA tends to be pretty heavy. Like you're listening to papers and there's a lot of um, heavy history and outside right. historians, yeah. academics, a lot of academic presentations. And the MWIT breakfast is early morning. And I thought, I don't want to lecture people for an hour and have them just be like, oh my gosh, let's do it something fun. So that's kind of where I was coming from is let's do it fun lighthearted so that it's not too heavy early in the morning and it worked. So, yeah. Anyway. That's amazing. Do you feel like you channeled your, like how you're a professor, like thinking about teaching your own students? Cause you, I'm sure you have to do that to keep your students engaged as well. Yeah, a little bit. There's kind of ways that you put things that are on their level or that not their level, like lower level, but right. ways that language and formulating things. I, you know, I throw in more, Marvel references and Star Wars references. Mm -hmm. And this reminds me of this. And I try to use their language a little bit. We talk about music, different things like that. So yeah, a little bit, but it was more, I was also pulling references also from my generation, the eighties, mm, right. as well as, you know, kind of like generic, how different generations talk about relationships. And so it kind of, I kind of pulled from different generations, but, but yeah, there was a little bit of professor in it a little fun, bit fun yeah wait can you give us a teaser of like a few favorite lines or how yeah well i'll give you one teaser i started out with a quiz Ooh. and hang on it'll come up there we go i might even i don't know if i can share screen that way you guys can see it too wait for it wait did it where did it go are you guys still there yep all right let's see if i can share screen 
Okay, so this is for you guys in the audience. Which of the following is your favorite Susan B. Anthony moment with Latter-day Saint women? A, wait, Susan B. Anthony knew LDS women? Mm-hmm. B, that time after the territorial suffrage bill that she bashed polygamy and got banned from speaking in the tabernacle? Uh-huh. C, that time after statehood that she spoke in the tabernacle to 6,000 screaming women? And that's what I mean, like, they weren't actually screaming, but I thought to use like a rock concert yeah. kind of okay. message might, might make it funnier. That time that she took a massive group selfie with leading Mormon suffragists or that time that she ordered a dress made by, made of silk by Utah women or that time that she put her arm around Emmeline's waist. Ooh. Um, so that was the, that's what I started it out with. And everyone I had to, I, I just asked the audience who votes for letter A, mm-hmm. who votes for letter B just by raise of hand. And by yeah. that point, everybody was already kind of like having fun and laughing a little bit. So all of these things did happen. Wow. I just worded them in ways. That... <laughs> what? Well, wow. oh my gosh. I love this because I I've heard about some of them, but like the way you phrase it is really fun. Like obviously like to make it silly and fun, but wait, tell me more about um, F please. That time she put her arm around Emmeline's waist. Well, it has to do with um, one of the stages of the relationship we're talking about, mm-hmm. which is like the reconciliation and Emmeline goes to a suffrage meeting and she's uncomfortable she doesn't think people are going to accept her that kind of thing and so anthony brings her up to the podium Mm. and puts her arm around her waist to show that she is giving her acceptance in front of all these people because she was a mormon woman and mormon women were not considered legit right because of the polygamy gig so so that actually did happen oh Um, the the twin evils yeah yeah, of barbarism slavery and polygamy that's right that's that's right yeah. yeah. So these all happened. I just put it in a way of these are all kind of like special Mormon moments with Susan B. Anthony yeah. and there's others, but so this is kind of how I started it out. Wait, and so then I'm, I went to, Oh, sorry. I'm, I'm just a history nerd. So I'm like, I need to get it right. So she was banned from speaking, but then did speak at one point. Did she speak first before she bashed polygamy? So see how no, it was Okay. It was her first time in the tabernacle and, and Elizabeth Cady Stanton as well. So they came out okay. in 71 and they both got to speak in, in the tabernacle, but they immediately started to say that they disagreed with polygamy and they considered polygamy an abhorrent institution. Stanton was worse. Stanton mm-hmm. was really like to her, well, Stanton just bashed marriage in general, whether it was polygamous or monogamous, she considered it all all patriarchal Mm. so she's like i don't care whether you're polygamous or monogamous but marriage in general puts men in charge of women so Mm. but anthony herself and so they weren't allowed to speak in the tabernacle after that all of their interactions would have been in small circles okay and i go into more more of that so okay thank you so that's how i started it's fun yeah and the 6,000 screaming women, that was later after statehood. Polygamy had already been obviously revoked with the manifesto and now it's statehood. Mm-hmm. So she right. was allowed back in the tabernacle. So that shows kind of the spectrum where in 1871, she bashed polygamy. And then in 1896, she's wow. up there in front of 6,000 women who are just like, yay, Susan B. Anthony. Fascinating. Okay. So 25 years later. Interesting. 
And funny, mm-hmm. yeah. So like, oh, the ban is lifted. <laughs> In addition to like, exactly. No more Which polygamy. Is- and Susan B. Anthony can speak in the tabernacle again. Amazing. That's- and then the famous group selfie is a picture of Mormon women with Anthony. I have it somewhere in my PowerPoint, but I'm not sure if I can find it. Here it is. Can you guys see that? Oh, yeah. Okay. I have seen this picture before. Like a group portrait, but I just called it a yeah. group selfie. I thought yeah. that would be, you know, because doesn't mm-hmm. it kind of look like a group selfie? Totally. <laughs> Gather in, get a picture. That oh. happened when when Utah got statehood with suffrage in its constitution. So then these are Anthony here and Anna Howard Shaw with a bunch of Mormon women. Mm. Anyway, so there you go. That's how I started. Um, then from there, I gave my basic outline of my the relationship. So these are my stages of the relationship. The first stage I call speed dating. Mm-hmm. Um, that is referring to when Anthony and Stanton came to Utah and were kind of being played off between the reformists, the Godbeite women, and the official, the mainstream Mormon Relief Society women. And they were meeting with both of them, but favoring more the Godbeite women and not the Relief Society women at first. So, I call it speed dating, or I also call it the bachelorette. Yeah. Yeah. Suffrage version, suffrage edition. Mm-hmm. Um, then I call the 1870s mad crushing. Um, I call 1879 the first official date. And then the 1870s, late 1870s, just hanging out or casual dating. Um, there's an imp- incident in 1882 that I call driving past your house. Um, and then a reference to friends, the 1880s, I call, we were on a break. <laughs> if you guys remember that, do you know what I'm talking about? Yes, of course. Yeah, from friends. Of course. Rachel from and friends. Ross. Okay. <laughs> okay. Just checking. That was a joke. I wasn't sure if it was going to go over very well because of that comp. I mean, does Laurel Thatcher Ulrich know when Ross... <laughs> I don't think so. Wasn't Maybe. faithful to Rachel. We were on a break, but enough people in the audience got it that they're like, uh, "Yeah, we were on a break." Um, and then I call um, couples counseling the late 1880s, and then making up 1889, and then going steady, engagement and marriage 1895, the honeymoon. As you learn from Nancy, is the dress. I was going to ask. Amazing. Oh, the dress is the the honeymoon is the dress. And then I referred to grandmother Susan is how I ended it. So anyway, that's my stages. If you want to talk through these stages, because I know not necessarily all of your listeners are going to be history nerds or want like a huge history lecture, but I can go through each one of them kind of like in generalities of what did I mean by. Yeah, let's let's yeah, let's learn our let's learn our history. I love the title. I feel like as somebody who's not like 100% a history nerd, I will remember that timeline just because of how (laughs) relevant to pop culture it is. Um, Especially that we are on a break. I was like, oh, it's Ross in the room with us right now. (laughs) That's so funny. Because it's, yeah, the like, oh, sorry. Like, yeah. Well, it's complicated too. And all of these, they don't fit 
perfectly, you know, it's much more complicated than what I'm making it, but I was trying to go for kind of generalities that people could remember. So Rebecca um, Clark was there at the bottom. She's like, well, this is more like this. And this is more uh-huh. like this. And I said, yeah, 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 I know. I know. Um, there's complications within all of these, but there's really great, there's great incidents within each one of these that encapsulate what that stage represents. So, and that's what like the arm around Emmeline B. Wells represents yeah. is kind of like the making up stage is when Emmeline was coming back to suffrage events and wasn't sure if she would be welcome. And she brings her up on the stage and puts her arm around her to show that she's back in hmm. anyway. So um, let's see, what can we do first? So the one I call speed dating or the bachelorette suffrage season. Um, so Anthony and Stanton went to Utah in 1871 and that account is really interesting. They took the Union Pacific Railroad and in Wyoming, they mm. got snowed in for like two weeks. And so they're stuck in this train car waiting to get to Utah. Wow. Um, and Anthony's account of being stuck in a train car in a snow, like up against a snowbank in Wyoming. But what was going on at the time was there was all these schisms happening in the church at the time in Salt Lake. And there was this particular movement called the New Movement um, that was headed by uh, the Godby family, like William Godby, um, who was a polygamist. And Charlotte Godby, um, one of his wives, who's here in this picture that you guys can see, even though your listeners can't see it. She was really the one that that Anthony and Stanton reached out to as their main kind of point of contact for the suffragists in Utah. So at this point in time, in 1871, Emmeline B. Wells wasn't really even on this, like on anybody's radar. Um, And the women's exponent hadn't been formed yet. Um, What obviously what exponent two is named after is the original exponent, women's exponent newspaper, but that wasn't formed in, until 1872. So at this point, there wasn't really an organized suffrage group or leader from the mainstream Relief Society suffragists. So of course, they're they're reaching out to the Godbeites and the new reformers played themselves up to be a little bit more edgy and progressive. And we're not in the Brigham camp. Okay, I was going to ask like what, because I've heard of Godbeites, but like, then that's all I know. So what makes them different? The edgy, not team Brigham. What else? Yeah. Not team Brigham. That's kind of, but still polygamy. So that's, what's interesting to me. Yeah. Yeah. It's really kind of, it's really kind of complex. They were trying to merge kind of like a spiritualism aspect with Mm. institutional Mormonism, but still saying we're different from the Brighamites. Um, and so they brought in a lot of people, but they still were embracing polygamy, although some in the Godbeites were like, we need to ditch polygamy because it's too much Brighamite mm-hmm. kind of thing. So they were getting some, it was more like everybody who was upset with Brigham found excuses to go join the Godbeites or to kind of meld with them a little bit. And so that's okay. why the polygamy thing was kind of fuzzy. Okay. So to Stanton and Anthony, I think just the fact that they were meeting with somebody who wasn't the institutional church. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Like they're yeah, meeting with yeah. women who are not officially in Brigham's camp was probably more, more important to them. But meanwhile, the Mormon women were still reaching out to them and, and they were meeting with them. So they're meeting with both groups. And that's why I call it speed dating. 
Okay, I'm going to pause both- one more one more time. What was the motivation of the Mormon women to reach out to Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony? Like, were they encouraged by their church leaders to do it, or they just wanted to know more about women's roles? Like, help me understand that part. Okay, so there was a lot going on in the suffrage movement leading up to this point, and um, and we'd have to back up and look what was going on nationally. And at the end of the Civil War, mm-hmm. there was this movement, of course, to pass a a citizenship for um, black people after the Civil War. So that was the 14th Amendment. And then Republicans also supported a version of a federal support for voting rights for black men. Mm-hmm. And that was the 15th Amendment. But leading up to that, um, the suffrage movement kind of split over that issue because right. the national suffrage movement was more immediate, more radical, where they wanted to see women and so black men and black men and women included in the 15th Amendment. But Republicans said that was too much. Mm-hmm. And they would do it. They only wanted to enfranchise freedmen. Mm-hmm. So that upset the national suffrage movement. Well, the American Women's Suffrage Association that was led by Lucy Stone, it had male leadership as well. So Frederick Douglass associated with them, um, Henry Ward Beecher, Mm-hmm. Julia Ward Howe, who wrote the Battle Hymn of the Republic, they were more in the uh, the American, whereas Stanton and Anthony were in the national. So Mormon women, Utah had already passed suffrage in 1870, right? in right. February of 1870. Right. And that was a big, big deal. So for Stanton and Anthony, a visit to Utah was important because it was like an acknowledgement that this territory out West already had what they were wanting for the whole nation, which is women's suffrage Mm -hmm. so that was partly what was drove the visit to utah was we have to go visit the place that actually has suffrage right and because suffrage was so intertwined with the polygamy question and mormon women had supported suffrage mainly to defend the church and to defend polygamy so it was already suffrage itself was really complex it was wrapped up in the fact that mormon women were defending polygamy Right. So bring out Stanton and Anthony and it's this interesting contradiction. They want to support Utah women because they have the right to vote, but they also don't really want to acknowledge or give credence to the fact that the reason they have the right to vote is because Mormon women were defending polygamy, which they hated. Right. You see the right. you see the contradiction they were in, the juxtaposition that they were in that was really uncomfortable. So when they got to Salt Lake they're like, yay, we're here. And everybody knew who they were, of course, because they were Stanton and Anthony. But they couldn't necessarily say, oh, and by the way, we're so proud of you for passing suffrage to defend polygamy. Yay, uh-huh. you. They couldn't right. say that, you know. So that's why they kind of leaned more toward the Godbeite women, even though, ironically, the Godbeites still practice polygamy. Isn't it wacky? Yeah, yeah. Just, yeah. It's just yeah. crazy sauce. Yeah. Anyway. Thank you. Thank so you that's, time. does that give it an, an answer to your question? It does. Thank you, Andrea. Yeah. Meanwhile. Okay. So meanwhile, they were also hanging out with other kind of radical women and one, her name was Victoria Woodhull. And you maybe have heard of her. She's the one who is the free love advocate Ooh. in the 1870s. Yeah. So she was, she was, not necessarily espousing that everyone should practice free love, but she was basically calling out the hypocrisy of 19th century men Mm. for always having mistresses and affairs. And that's okay for men, 
But if women suggested a free love approach for their own sexual choices, that's forbidden because women, because Victorian women. And so Victoria Woodhull kind of publicly espousing free love and also having affairs with high profile politicians, et cetera. And Anthony and Stanton supported, particularly Stanton supported this idea that basically bodily choice for women Mm-hmm. and freedom of divorce and access to birth control not abortion but at the time access to birth control kind of your own family planning and so all of that coupled with visiting utah got them painted as super radical well here okay. you're hanging out with advocates and you're hanging out with polygamists how dare you mm. and so then that put more kind of support toward the american suffrage association so Anyway, so that's kind of that visit, and that's why I call it speed dating, is they're hanging out with two different groups. Right, right. All right. My next one, remind me. Ah, mad crushing. Okay, so the next stage, after St. Anthony go back, then 1872, President Grant gets elected, and Anthony does this really bold, famous things. One of the things that she's most famous for, which is that she went to vote in Rochester. Hmm. So she showed up at the voting place and just basically claimed her constitutional right to vote and said, by virtue of the United States Constitution, voting is implied as right of a citizen. And so she gets arrested and then taken to jail and then she's fined. She's ultimately, the judge fines her $100, which she refuses to pay. Ironically, that was pardoned by President Trump. I was going to say what? that. My what? mother and I, my mother and I got in a fight about this. Because Did my you? mother is a Trumper. And she said, he's such a good guy. He went and pardoned Susan B. Anthony. And I'm like, mom, that arrest was a statement. It did not need a pardon he's like erasing exactly had no idea exactly so let me see did he did he even know she wasn't alive anymore that's my question Uh, that's a question because he didn't know who frederick douglas was because he didn't know who frederick douglas was either but anyway um so what's interesting is, is that anthony's little stunt which is basically civil disobedience right Right. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the first and major acts of civil disobedience um, by a white woman in this kind of context. The Mormon women ate that up. Mm. So by that point, the exponent has been founded. And in 1872, you see it peppered throughout, like these references to Anthony and how cool Anthony was and why we sure look up to her. And she's just, and so that's why I call it mad crushing because she's back in new york Mm. she still doesn't have any interaction really with any significant relief society leadership in the suffrage movement but she's doing all this cool stuff so let's see i found some fun quotes for you um rochester this one statement from the exponent rochester has 14 astrologists 10 magic doctors two mind readers a five-legged horse a one-eyed goat, Seth Green, and Susan B. Anthony, and yet they long for something more. So in other words, <laughs> Rochester has everything that it could possibly want, including Susan B. Anthony. So they're right. quoting that kind of stuff. And here you see, you guys are seeing this famous image of her when she gets 
arrested. Here's a quote again from the exponent. Miss Anthony is a shrewd woman who does not give up the chase and at the next general election will probably be allowed to vote as she deserves to do without molestation. Um, the Circuit Court of the State of New York decided in the case of Miss Anthony and other women who claimed their right to vote under the 14th and 15th Amendments that their votes were illegal and a fine was imposed on Miss Anthony. Thus, the law holds that to be a crime. And when done by a woman, which is praiseworthy, and right when done by a man. Anyway, mm. so they're calling out also the hypocrisy of a civil disobedience being committed by a woman. Um, anyway, so that goes on. The 1870s is really just mad crushing from afar. There's not really much going on when they're contacting Utah or in communication with Utah. It's almost always with the Godbeites, hmm. um, only from time to time. But what really brings the mainstream Mormon women suffragists into the radar, into the, the view of the national suffrage leaders was because of Emmeline B. Wells. So Emmeline B. Wells is hmm. a, the most, probably the most famous Mormon woman suffragist in the 19th century. She was the fifth General Relief Society president. She was married to an apostle, Daniel H. Wells. Um, she was the editor, co-editor of the Exponent until 1877. And then she took over as main editor of the Exponent in 1877. So she starts, she, it's really because of her initiative and her drive and her reaching out to national suffrage leaders and trying to get some of her own editorials printed back East that they start to notice, Oh wait, there's this suffrage magazine back in Utah. Mm. Yeah. We met with those gals. Yeah. And then now we were meeting with the Godbeites, but by this point, the Godbeites movement in, in general was kind of losing steam. And so Emmeline B. Wells almost single-handedly brings the mainstream Mormon women and relief society into the, view of the national suffrage so that's why i call it the first date she gets invited to go to the national suffrage association meetings in washington dc and it's this big deal and she gets on the train and she goes back to washington dc and and shows up at the conference um she actually took zina young williams brigham young's daughter with her so they went together i don't know if zina was sent to kind of keep an eye on her or whatever. Uh -huh. um, yeah, met with. I know from my BBC watching that women can't be unaccompanied. They have to have some kind of companion or chaperone. That's right. That's right. And she met with President Rutherford B. Hayes, et cetera. Anyway, so 1879 is a big deal for all of this. So I call this the first date. And it's referred to in many occasions, this time when Emmeline B. Wells actually went to the National Association. Um, and we have accounts of what it was like. Let me see if I can pull it up. Let's see. I think I've got it here. Wait a second. Wait for it. Ah, here's my account. Here we were cordially welcomed by Mrs. Elizabeth Cady Stanton, whose name is well known to our readers. And Miss Susan B. Anthony, whose name has rung from one end of the country to the mm -hmm. other in consistent connection with women's suffrage. These good ladies sought to make us feel perfectly at home. And when soon after in came Miss Sarah Andrews Spencer, whom we met face to face for the first time, our heart went forth in great waves of love to her for her courageous defense of the women of Utah here in Congress of the National Capitol and under the broad flag of freedom to all men. Miss Anthony, I'll talk about Sarah Andrews, Sarah Spencer in a minute. 
Miss Anthony is in every respect Mrs. Stanson's opposite, except that they agree on the woman question. She is entirely different from what one would fancy in reading about her upon the platform. She wore a very rich black silk dress. So this is even before the Mormon gift of a silk dress way later, like 20 years later. She's up, she's already wearing black silk dress. Trimmed with velvet and lace, in many respects, she is very remarkable. She possesses great firmness and strength of character and is a very famous talker. Her voice is not as pleasant as Mrs. Stanton's, but her words are sharp and incisive, and she never utters a sentence in public that is not calculated from its construction. Um, should strike deep at the foundation of the evil of which she speaks. Her best lecture delivered there was bread, was the bread and the ballot, which is her famous her famous speech. Mm. So this is Mormon women's first personal interaction with um, Susan B. Anthony was at this 1879 meeting. I love that they, I love that they criticize her voice. So how we say someone has like primary voice. I wonder if there's like suffrage voice. Uh I wonder if there's like, you know, some tone that, or maybe it's like, maybe it's pinched voice or maybe it's. Yeah. To, yeah, you don't know what would have been an unacceptable voice in the 1870s, etc. We do this. Uh, we, we love to criticize women's voices. Yeah. Don't yeah. We even even yeah. us feminists do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and everything, Susan B. Like Susan B. Anthony, in my mind, is except for her racism, is beyond reproach when it becomes when it comes to her her just suffrage principles in general. But yeah, they found a way to criticize her. Stanton was definitely more kind of like the rock star in many ways, um, because Stanton would say and things that say things that were like supremely bold about marriage and sexuality, and um, you know, like criticizing all marriage, regardless of whether it's polygamous or monogamous. Mm-hmm. Um, Stanton was the one that was outwardly criticizing patriarchy in the way that you guys would love. Uh-huh. Um, and Anthony was just this more careful kind of academic type of approach, I guess. Anyway, um, so that brings me to my next stage. 1879 was still kind of iffy. Like, it's a first date, but we're not steady dating yet. So in 1879, also the Supreme Court gave its major decision the Reynolds case which maybe you guys have heard of that said that it's okay to prosecute polygamy that polygamy is not protected under the first amendment free exercise clause it was the first supreme court case in america to deal with the question of religious freedom did you know that it was the first one religious freedom is one of my trigger words right now when i hear it yeah. I bristle and get real angry and think, can we stop punishing yeah. LGBTQ people? LDS church, please. Yes. Go on. I, yeah. I, yes. But in this case, right. Yeah. It was basically opened it up for the federal government to be able to pass laws against polygamy without it being unconstitutional. Hmm. Because now you have a Supreme court case that says, yeah, it's okay to prosecute polygamy because it's mm-hmm. not protected by the prosecution or by the constitution. So Mm -hmm. that opens it up for the 1880s, this decade of anti-polygamy legislation, 1882, the Edmonds act, and then 1887, the Edmonds Tucker act. So if you go back to my little stages, I call that we were on a break Uh because during this time, when the heat kind of, when it, when the heat mounted against 
Utah and against the polygamists. And also after 1887, the prosecutions and imprisoning polygamists and all that, the National Suffrage Association, both Anthony and Stanton, had to be super, super careful in mm. what they publicly said, any engagement that they had with Mormon women at all, because anything was suspect. If you had even a hint of kind of supporting or empathizing or sympathizing with the Utah women, then you could be accused of sympathizing with polygamy, which is, you know how these things go. Once it becomes a hot button issue, then you have to watch your, watch your P's and Q's. So that's why I call 1882 to 1887, we were on a break. It wasn't an official break because they were still corresponding with Mormon women. This, the women's exponent was still being published. Wells is still writing editorials, a lot of pro-suffrage stuff. She's still reporting on all the national suffrage activities. They're still kind of crushing from afar, but Anthony herself is kind of keeping them at arm's length. So that's In any of that Emmeline's did. writings, does she seem sad at how they're being treated? Like, do you have any... I mean, it it comes up. They talk about who they're... They, they mostly would give positive attention to the ones that supported them, like the Sarah okay. Spencer. Sarah Andrews Spencer was okay. in the National Association, and she was very, um, very sympathetic to Mormon women. She just had this really open mind. She wasn't bothered by the polygamy question at all. And she was the one that kind of openly advocated for the national leaders to reach out and to make contact with Mormon women. I kind of okay. was trying to come up with another kind of cultural metaphor for this. And the best I could come up with was like high school cliques. So imagine mm. if you will, that Anthony is like in this clique and she's kind of like the head cheese in this high school clique. And the Mormon women and the God women are kind of like marginalized. They're kind of like the skater girls. They're on the edge mm. and they want to be accepted by this more popular clique. But Anthony's still kind of iffy. I don't know if we should hang out with that. Those, those, the, the Mormon women, but Sarah Spencer is in her clique and is kind of nudging her and saying, Hey, you need to, you need to be nice to those girls. Those girls are really cool. Hmm. You need to be nice to them. And so that's what is what Anthony's like, okay, I'll listen to you. So if you can go back to your high school cafeteria years and think in terms of kind of like that, that's kind of the dynamic that's going on there. All right. So Andrea, I'm thinking of, I'm thinking of mean girls and I'm Ah. I'm imagining uh, Susan B. Anthony as Regina George saying, you know, on Wednesdays we wear Ah. black silk (laughs) and, and saying to the Mormons, Stop trying to make polygamy happen. It's mm, not going to happen. That's mm, mm. just not going to happen. Yep. Yep. You know, it's funny. You know, it's funny how there was before this, I was like, I was wondering if I could parlay something from Mean Girls into this. And by golly, you came up with it. You got it. So I just might have <laughs> to like, I might have to run with that and then give like Heather a footnote. <laughs> this is another Heatherism. Yeah. Regina George. <laughs> Wednesday is Black Silk Day. Oh my gosh, that's so funny. Anyway, this is the one I have to be a little bit like, I love this moment. When I gave my talk, I pulled up this slide without really saying anything. And the crowd just roared because driving past your house and everybody like in their generation, sorry, Ramona, in your generation, everybody knows what driving past your house means. So I'll go to the audience. 
Ramona, do you know what driving past your house means? Well, there are two different versions of this. Oh. It's the regular version and the black version. Uh, Okay. So, um, a drive by your house, I guess, you know, um, the way I'm thinking about it is, you know, maybe there's somebody you like, drive past their house, Uh you know, all excited, you know, hopefully they see you or something like that. But then there's a back person like driving minors. past your house. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. There's there's also the back person that driving past your house, which is a little bit more violent, where somebody <laughs> wants to come beat you up or mm. worse. So well, interesting in this case. Reasons. In this case, the two almost kind of mixed a little bit because. Ooh. So yes, this is referring to the notion of when you have a crush on somebody that there's minor stalking involved. And I looked and looked, I was like, I so hope I can find an example of some of the Mormon suffragists visiting Susan B. Anthony in Rochester because I gave the talk in Rochester. And sure enough, 1882, Romania Pratt, Ellen Ferguson, and Zina D.H. Young, who was one of Brigham's wives, they made a trip back east to visit um, New York. They were going, I think, to a suffrage meeting and they decided to do a stop in Rochester to visit Susan B. Anthony. Anthony wasn't home, but her sister was home. Cause as you, I don't know if you know, but her sister lived in the same house. Um, she invited them to stay for dinner, which was kind of maybe like a late tea. I'm not sure the nature of the, the meal, but her sister, Susan B. Anthony's sister immediately turned the conversation to polygamy. And mm. she basically started just ripping them to shreds. And in the women's exponent, the quote is, Dinner conversation turned to quote sharp talk, sharp on talk, which means the meal was went downhill pretty quickly. Um, so their attempts at like driving past your house might mean that she'll notice us now. Now we're on her radar, but she wasn't even home, and her sister took them to task for polygamy. So they kind of exited the house in kind of heads hanging low, and well. We're not going to associate with them anymore. Not really that, that, but oh no, she doesn't like us. She doesn't like kind of thing. So that's the driving past your house stage. I had to throw that in because it's one of my favorites. That's a fascinating Um, story. (laughs) (laughs) Then in the 1882 convention, um, Zina D.H. Young, when at this convention in New York, they weren't in Washington, D.C., the exponent reported Mrs. Young, however, was not invited to speak. Although she could have represented a class of people who have exercised the privilege of the franchise for 12 years, meaning Utah women, mm-hmm. and were well acquainted with its practical workings. There is no denying the fact that the only difficulty in the way of representation was Mormonism. So this is my story to kind of encapsulate the we were on a break phase of the 1880s. I forgot um, that they had for 12 years. I think in my brain, I was like, yeah, they had it for like a year or two. And then the, like 12 years, that's a long time. Yeah, because 1870 to 1882. So in 1882, yeah. the Edmunds Tucker, Edmunds Act, I always get this wrong. The Edmunds Act disenfranchised polygamous women. I believe all practicing polygamous women. So they lost the right to vote. And then in 1887, it disenfranchised all Utah women. So it kind of attacked you whether you were mormon or not or polygamist Mm -hmm. or not so there's kind of an evolution of 
basically the federal government used women as a political tool, like they weaponized suffrage against Mormons in general, which was so not fair. Yeah. Um, but that's what happened. So, um, yeah. So there's that little episode. And then, then from the 18, from 1882 until about 1888, 89 is when Anthony really had to kind of keep an arm's length. She would write, she would respond to Wells. They were still friends. I should call this the pen pal phase also. They uh-huh. were still friends, but it was not like this close relationship. And Anthony was not necessarily the loyal girlfriend she should have been because she was trying to mind her P's and Q's. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Anyway, so that's that. What do I have next? Ah, making up my next stage. So in 1889, Utah formed a suffrage association. Now there's a lot going on here. Utah women have lost the right to vote by this point. Um, but they're trying to still stay active in the suffrage movement. So what they did was to choose as their suffrage leadership, three women who were not polygamists. So it's consciously done. And I think, and that I, I believe if I'm not mistaken, historians that are listening to this might be like, she got this wrong, but I believe that that was the conditions of having a Utah suffrage association um, in alignment with the national organization was that they couldn't have polygamists in their representation. So they Mm. chose Emily S. Richards, um, Sarah Granger Kimball, who was the founder of the Relief Society, but never practiced polygamy and Phoebe Beatty, ironically one of Brigham Young's daughters who was also a monogamist, but so Emily S. Richards then is invited to go to the national suffrage meetings and she does. And this is an important anecdote here. Mrs. Kane was very busy when I arrived. So I called upon Miss Anthony who was very busy and had left word that she would not be able to see anyone, but she received me very kindly. And she said that Mrs. Wells had written on our, of our organization and she was very much pleased. So you can see that reference that she's still, corresponding with Emily B. Wells. But remember, Mm -hmm. Emily B. Wells was a polygamist. Mm -hmm. Um, Although by this point, a widow. So not technically a polygamist. But anyway, she was very much pleased. Indeed, she sympathizes with us and was glad that we had taken this step, meaning making a Utah Suffrage Association. I paid our dues, which made us an auxiliary to the National Women's Suffrage Association. Although the program had been made out, she said that we should have an opportunity of being heard. We had 10 minutes to speak and I asked for 14 and it was granted. That just gave me time to read what I had prepared. We were received very kindly. So Mm -hmm. this is why I call 1889 making up. There's like this barrier starts to break down. Now, what was also happening, not only choosing monogamous women, but polygamy was on its way down. Like fewer women were embracing it. And the, the kind of like the writing on the wall toward the manifesto was happening because this is 1889. The manifesto mm-hmm. will be passed in 1890. So you see mm-hmm. kind of where this is going. What is the mix of like the women just acting for themselves versus church leaders saying like work to get the vote back. I think I'm so used to like, like my grandma was asked to like, knock door to door during the the ERA movement to say, don't vote for ERA. So I'm just so used to like the church controlling women. What was it like in this era? If you can like, what's the, what's your sense? My sense is this was very much more autonomous than you you might think that this was really relief society driven. 
um, the women's exponent like independent was, relief society driven. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. The women's exponent was the independent publication of the relief society and it was consciously pro suffrage. Right. I mean, right. it was also pro polygamy okay. throughout, but it was also pro suffrage. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't like they were getting these editorials from George Q. Cannon or John Taylor saying, you have to write, we really want you guys to be activists for suffrage. Um, okay. Yeah. That okay. That Thank question. you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sorry. My puppy is being not, he, he's, he might want to go out. So mm-hmm. I might have to, uh, he wants me to pet him and not scroll on my mouse pad. How's that? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So then these 1890s, this, I call this steady dating is once this, once this barrier broke and then the steady dating happens in which now we have conscious relationships with the Utah women. We're writing to them. Um, we're encouraging them. We want them to get the vote back. There was a lot of outrage in 1887 when they lost the vote that no matter how we felt about polygamy, how dare you federal government take the right to vote away from women who had voted for it, who had chosen it? How dare you? Mm. Even though they're polygamists, we don't, you've gone too far to take away their right to vote. Okay. Um, in the early years, there was this hope by a lot of anti-polygamy activists, including the suffrage association, that somehow if Mormon women got the right to vote, that they would somehow get rid of polygamy. And okay. they did. And so that idea was kind of thrown out the window. Yeah. Yeah. So by this point, they're like, okay, polygamy is a reality, but how dare you take away their right to vote? So once this relationship started up again, then Anthony is actively encouraging them. We have to help you get the right to vote back. You have to get the right to vote back. And they're being invited to all the meetings. They're attending meetings of the national suffrage movement back East. They're going to Washington, DC more often. Um, the correspondence is more regular. And so that's going to build up until this, what I call the engagement in marriage, hmm. which is when Utah finally applies for statehood and includes in the written constitution, which was debated at the time by men, but it did include in the constitution a protection of women's suffrage, a women's suffrage writer into the constitution. Um, The men debated it, of course, and there were those like B.H. Roberts who were totally opposed to women's suffrage because they they thought that statehood would be blocked, that Congress would never vote for Utah statehood if it came in with women's suffrage, but there were enough people behind it that it did get put in and Utah, the Utah oh. constitution was accepted. And then just all celebration breaks, breaks loose. It's just, just party central. And Anthony makes this personal visit to Utah to celebrate with the Utah women for being one of the first states to get the right to vote as a state to come in as a state with suffrage, which was really rare. So this is the famous photo of Anthony's visit. I'm having a hard time, Andrea, imagining men, Mormon men celebrating women's liberation in this way. And so mm-hmm. I, I guess I'm just feeling so jaded right now. And so I'm like, this makes me happy to hear, but I'm also like, oh, what might have been just, or not even what might have been like, but like, yeah. glad that the men could. Support. Well, this is the way I put it. Um, and I have to choose my words carefully here. 19th century Mormon feminists were not challenging their own patriarchy. They were upholding the patriarchy. Right. And so that's why their version of feminism was accepted by the institution. A Heather Sundahl phrase I've learned is mistress of the patriarchy. So yeah, yeah, I know what you're saying. 
Right. Okay. So as long as you're defending polygamy and you're sustaining the brethren, then yes, women's suffrage is all go. Yeah. And there were those like Emily S. Richards' husband, Franklin S. Richards, who I think he consciously believed in women's political and social equality. They were the the monogamous couple. Um, There were those. I I think that there were some men who did consciously. but, But you also have these complex figures like Joseph F. Smith, who is definitely not somebody I would consider a supporter of gender equality. He supported women's suffrage. So you have these, and there's a split kind of. Was it to like look good to other, like the rest of the country or to show, look how different we are? Like, Um, I think that's a good question. Um, Maybe a mix of, yeah, look at our women are depressed. Like you think they are. Oh, right, right, right. Yep. Yep. That was, that was a lot behind it all the time was look at how, look at how elevated our women are they can vote and you guys can't so stop thinking about me yeah i think it's so easy for us with our 21st century eyes to just look at polygamy and kind of like roll our eyes and think that it was just just this completely patriarchal thing but i know in my own family my grandmother was the daughter of the second wife so i grew up talking to my grandma about her firsthand experience Mm-hmm. And right. his first wife, my great, my great grandfather, he didn't want to be part of polygamy. His wife made him. She basically said, all the cool people are doing mm. polygamy. I have found you a second wife. You and I a will continue to live thing. here in Ogden. She will live in Logan. Keeping up with the Joneses, taking on another yeah. wife. So, I you mean, know, there's such an interesting... I don't think oh, they ahead. saw themselves as oppressed. I think they mm-hmm. saw polygamy as their choice. Yeah. Well, finding There's out that so like they could divorce pretty easily was really interesting mm-hmm. to me, learning that reading Laurel's book, Household of Females. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, polygamy is this interesting, hot topic. And this was all the discussion was, is this a matter of bodily choice, sexual choice, marital mm-hmm. choice? Or is this a matter of they're being coerced that they've been brainwashed and there was never really a resolution to that because outsiders are all saying or those you know the apostate the women who left the church i'm not saying an apostate as a value-laden term i'm saying it as just a descriptor Mm -hmm. um that those who left the church would say well they're all brainwashed anyway because we lived the system we know that there's a lot of like patriarchal coercion in this but then you hear from Emmeline B. Wells herself who's saying, no, actually, there's a lot of agency in what we do. There's a lot of choice in what we do. Um, and Emmeline and others love to talk about that we're going to become goddesses someday and that being a polygamous is part of our, our future of being goddesses in the next life, that kind of thing. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, this notion of agency is something that always needs to be threaded throughout our discussions of polygamy and andrea right now um there is the whole concept of ethical non-monogamy and consensual non-monogamy among Mm -hmm. partners married partners long-term partners like it's a thing like as a therapist i I got a couple i see a couple couples who are engaged in ethical non-monogamy and it just like so Polygamists were deluded that these people are enlightened. 
Mm-hmm. You know, it's tricky. Yeah. It's, you can't make these, yeah. these lines, draw these lines. Right. I agree. Um, and that's why, I mean, you get into like the Playboy Mansion is this fun party all. <clears throat> Hugh Hefner is the mm. this great sexual god. That's okay. And yet at the same time, we are prosecuting polygamous women in Utah or whatever. Like if you want to make whatever contrast you want to make. Um, yeah, those contradictions are there. And they made them at the mm. time. And so I think it all has to do with consent, consent for sure. And I think they were very much aware of that notion. And don't, don't you dare call us brainwashed or deluded or oppressed because this is an active choice. This is a free will choice. But making. also how so, much power did women have? Like we're, women were still property. Women were still like, there's still, and is yeah. So it's like, well, I mean, saying, choice no. and agency. It's also in a very constrained space. Mm-hmm. Right. And how much, how many rights did Mormon women actually have? even under a suffrage, a free suffrage system, it was right. still, it wasn't as free as Wyoming, Wyoming, they could hold office and they could, serve in political offices in Utah they couldn't so suffrage was still wasn't a full thing in Utah it was a it was a constrained limited suffrage oh I didn't even think about that thanks for naming that they're still they're still defending gendered spheres and separate spheres Mm -hmm. in the home they're still defending male headship over wives in the home and the patriarchal system in the home like you see Mormon women out of one side of their mouth they're saying this is the age of women's liberation, literally. And then on the other side of their mouth, they're saying, and yet we defer to our husbands in the home. Mm-hmm. And that contradiction was never, they were okay with that contradiction. It's still something I struggle to get my head around, you know, as a modern Mormon feminist. It's just, it's something that baffles me, but I'm sure as you but I have to give them their space of where they were making this work because they did have, I mean, it's these wealthy polygamous women that were the ones that could afford to go back East right. to do these big meetings that could wear. I mean, they talk about Zina D.H. Young's fabulous wardrobe when she went to some of these meetings and they're making silk dresses. They were very much in tune with the cultural social refinement of the era of what it means to be an upper class woman. And there was a privilege that came with that. There was a privilege of being a white woman, even if you were a polygamist, there was a privilege that came with being a white woman who was married to a wealthy church leader. In Salt Lake. And I don't and know not, that they were and not yeah, in Southern Utah or not the Dixie Mission or whatever. Yeah. Exactly. The Muddy Mission. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And so I don't know. I mean, certainly they weren't cognizant of their privilege, of course, mm-hmm. but they were at least aware of you know, how to navigate this world of we're going back to Washington, D.C. and we're in these fine hotels and auditoriums where we're meeting with people wearing silk and velvet and you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. So that brings us to the dress. So what better gift to give Susan B. Anthony, which is a dress that in the same way represents this kind of pioneering spirit, which is we make silk out of our own hands. But at the same time, silk is a material a fabric of the upper classes it's a refined fabric that shows that we are accepted we are assimilated wealthy class 
upper class Americans. And what better gift to give Susan B. Anthony, who obviously loved to wear black dresses, is to give her this. So this kind of represents this, you know, kind of bringing it so all together. So it wasn't just black and white photographs. She really did love black dresses. She really did love black dresses. Okay. Also, what Remember you said too. Queen Victoria popularized it. Oh, Queen Victoria. Queen Victoria, after Prince Albert died, she wore black oh. for the rest of her life. Oh. It was in mourning, but it popularized the color black for fascinating. Anyway, like them. looking at these pictures, yeah. I've been like, I wonder what color that was. So really, it was a black. And then <laughs> I'm also laughing because I was like, oh, as you said, the like we can be upper class, we can assimilate. I thought we waited till the 1950s to do this as a church, but you're saying this happened. <laughs> We've had some stages. Yeah. Okay. We've had some stages, which is also why, to bring it back to the race question, why. Mormon women are sometimes parroting the same racist ideas on suffrage that Susan B. Anthony unfortunately expressed. And these notions of, well, you can give black men the right to vote, but you won't give white women the right to vote. And this kind of like this coded racist language of, well, if you give black men the right to vote, what what's wrong with giving us who are more educated, more refined? You see what I'm saying? And right. you find in the women's exponent, even they're parroting some of that language hmm. that definitely all of them should be critiqued for. This is what right. makes Anthony as well as all white suffragists so complex in this time period is that they're full on they're having these debates over who should be included and who's like, who's too radical to associate with. And yet throughout, like we can associate with free love advocates, but we're not going to allow the black suffrage activists to come to our meetings or we're not going to include them in parades or, Mm. I mean, it's just so much of this unfortunate. I mean, all of it was laden with who's included, who's not included, who should be included, who shouldn't be included. And people of color, people of color, regardless of sexuality, we're never on the table. We're never at the Mm -hmm. table Mm -hmm. in all of these discussions. So, so yeah, Mormon women, polygamists or not could still pass racially. Right. And right. maybe that in the end also helped with this mending of this relationship is because they could pass. Right. Anyway, mm. after all of this, then you see that Susan B. Anthony continued to be celebrated and Mormon women would celebrate her birthday and they would have birthday greetings to her in the women's exponent and they would celebrate her and they would have parties. And it's Susan B. Anthony's birthday, which is March 1st, by the way. Um, and so um, I use this just to show that she continues to be, she continued and, and continues to be a part of our larger cultural imagination as far as Mormon women's history is our suffrage activism is definitely intertwined with this relationship with Susan B. Anthony. And it was more Susan B. Anthony than it was Elizabeth Cady Stanton. They never had this same relationship with Stanton ever, ever. Um, like kind of like an acquaintance. Stan was more like the radical girlfriend in the clique in high school that was, you know, wearing the Doc Martens and smoking dope or whatever. Like she's the girlfriend that's kind of like edgy, but they don't have the same relationship with her that they do with Anthony ever. Um, um, and then I don't, I don't know if you know this, but in the duel between who, who is the ultimate you know, American um, suffragist uh, between Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, Mattel, who, if you've seen the Barbie movie, 
um, the board of Mattel kind of stand in for the general authorities and all of that. So there is a Susan B. Anthony Barbie, but there is not an Elizabeth Cady Stanton one. So Mattel has spoken. Susan B. Anthony is the one. And Susan ended up on a coin. We don't have the silver dollar, right? Is that the? Yes, the Susan B. Anthony dollar. Yep. Yeah, we don't have a Elizabeth right. Katie Stanton one. And is Stanton's grave a site of pilgrimage for feminists today? No. It's Anthony's grave that is a site of pilgrimage. So here I show for for the viewing, for the listening audience, I have on the screen these images of some of the Mormon women's historians, including our Grand Dame Laurel. Um, all of us at Rochester visiting her grave. And then here I am in her parlor where she was arrested. So the federal marshals oh. actually came to her house. This would have been the same house where Romania Pratt and Ellen Ferguson tried to meet with her. Sharp talk. Her sister, sharp talk, but also the same place where she was arrested. So I just use this to show that we still kind of claim Anthony as Mormon women. We claim her as kind of like a foremother. Yeah. But we also have to claim her problematic elements as well. You know, we have to claim, like, if we claim her, we also have to take the problematic racist elements and we have to deal with those as well. Mm-hmm. And, um, but she also had Ida B. Wells as a personal visitor in her home who slept in a bedroom above, actually above mm-hmm. this room that I'm standing in was her guest bedroom that Ida B. Wells herself um, slept in. She was good friends with Frederick Douglass. So mm-hmm. she had these relationships. Her parents were abolitionists. But when it came to the question of whether black women should be included in suffrage leadership, she just could never embrace it. Maybe in so her heart it, she did, but she couldn't do it practically speaking. She just would never do it. So when it came to yeah. the, Montgom- the Montgomery waterfront hmm. um, race war, hmm. she lined up with with white. Yep. Yep. Exactly. But, I mean, all of our ancestors, of course, would be problematic this way. So this shows um, the um, better days. You know how better day, you know, guys, you guys know better days. Yeah. They're the better days 2020. Yeah. Better days 2020. Naomi Watkins. Right. And Rebecca. Nyland. And so they organized this nonprofit to celebrate the history of suffrage. Um, and it was launched in, um, 2020 also to celebrate that. Mormon women got the right to vote in 1870. So it was 150 years okay. for Utah. It was 100 years for the United States. And they um, ordered these, of course, these like illustrated cards. Who's my, who's our artist that did all of these? What's her name? Heather's looking up for me. They, um, they're these fabulous cards. They've really tried to be as, inter- they've, they've tried to take it beyond just the white Mormon women. And they've tried to expand it beyond the suffrage victory and show political um, women with a lot of political influence throughout the last 150 years. So they've tried to become more 
um, diverse and representative, um, including women of color, um, Native American women, mm-hmm. Japanese American women, Black women, all as part of this whole project. But the initial key figures are these early Relief Society leaders that we refer to, including, you know, Emily B. Wells and Emily Richards and all of those. So I finally looked it up. Illustrations by Brooke Smart. Thank you, Brooke. Brooke. Sorry, Brooke. I'm sorry. My brain is fried. Yeah. Anyway, um, any questions or comments? Ramona, we haven't heard from you. I'm so sorry if we put I put you to sleep. Uh-huh. I'm listening and taking it all in. Um, I found it interesting how, you know, she was very um, you know, not taking a stance on the black people. Um mm-hmm. and I and I kind of related that to, you know, what's going on in present day. Um, a lot of people are the talk in the back rooms, talk in the quiet places, but never vocally coming out and aligning themselves, mm-hmm. even when they see injustices. Um, like the public right. and private, yeah. Yes, the public mm-hmm. and private. It's like, I will be the ally in private. And that still goes on in modern day. Um, yeah. So I found that kind of interesting. Um, even mm-hmm. um, when she... I think we said she was friends with, you know, Frederick Douglass. Um, it kind of gives me, oh, I have a black friend. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. And so that was kind of what I was getting from it, from the conversation. Mm-hmm. I was just listening and soaking it all in. I feel like if there's a lot for me to learn as well from these conversations. And as I said, I'm not a huge history person, but learning about this is quite interesting. Thanks, Ramona. Well, one more current Somebody event. Yet. Oh, go ahead. Oh, no, you go ahead. I was going to say one more current event that's coming to mind, too, is like in Ohio with the like who like let's uh, what are the right words? Trying to do a ballot initiative to bring abortion back. And then even though it's like they're trying to change a law, the like even if the majority votes for it, like it still can't happen. So just the like finagling the vote some more. And bodily autonomy of women. Just these themes are coming out. When I look at how much states like Florida are trying to control um, how American history is taught and how black history is not included. (sighs) And by canceling the AP, the AP credit for African American studies. I mean, like Mm -hmm. these, these things that probably deep down, if anybody took any of these classes, they would, probably realize oh yeah this actually is our history this is yeah i, I mm. we know this intuitively yes you should you should talk about slavery but by coding mm. it in this like this is a threat right. to our white christian yeah. nation kind of thing it's like and that's like how do they get away with this it's the same uh, kind of the same kind of game it's yeah, just i know it's, I, mm-hmm. this is infuriating yeah it's very it's very problematic to see all this stuff going on um, a lot of it is just these um, politicians trying to align themselves with, you know, who they think their target demographic is and some of the policies and some of the things that those people support. And um, fun fact, this ended my relationship because... Mm. Um, I said, if somebody can't stand with me and my blackness and understand my blackness 
or try to learn about my blackness, um, the relationship can't continue. So, so I, I found a good boundary to have Ramona. I'm proud of you for that. Yeah. Um, And even, I don't know if you guys have seen the Prager U video. um, I was going to bring that up. Writing the slavery. Yeah. Rewriting slavery and slavery wasn't so bad. So Prager U is this hyper-conservative group that, like, is flooding, like, making educational videos and stories just so it's, like, teachers yeah. will use them. Like, oh, like, this is a nice it's video. Very, it's class. very, like, cons- it's very it's conservative. Whitewashing. Um, love. Yeah. Founding yeah. Slavery was actually really helpful and taught Black people fabulous skills. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's for Florida public education standard now. which is it brings up an interesting question because as a professor i actually teach that that blacks through their agency learned skills that they then adapted after slavery to their own use or they used it mm-hmm. to make money on the side but mm-hmm. but i've struggled with that like in it's factually true but the way that they're painting it is to try to paint it as though it's an excuse for slavery or it's like an apprenticeship yeah, I mean, in like a way is, and it's like yeah. no right this is yeah. an apprenticeship and it, and it kind of dilutes them. the yeah it dilutes it ignores, the violence it ignores consent the whole idea mm-hmm. of consent that's like mm-hmm. i have clients who were were sexually abused as children and some of of why and how they are so amazing now is is a result of that but no one's going to say oh my gosh isn't it so great that you were abused because now right. you're so resilient yeah. like, there's, it's, it's no. almost like the only way that the only way that black men learned to be carpenters or blacksmiths was because of slavery no, no. they would have been <laughs> carpenters or blacksmiths you know it's well, yeah. a lot of them brought those skills with them yeah mm-hmm. exactly exactly yeah. but i think all of this is a really good way of um, kind of circling back to this notion of relationship because I'm using relationship, a romantic relationship as a metaphor for this interaction between Mormon women and Anthony. But it, we need to think about boundaries and what defines relationships and what puts boundaries around them and who's included and who's not included. And yeah. why are you begging for inclusion from somebody who doesn't want to include you? Yeah. Why are you begging for acceptance from somebody who doesn't really accept you or um, and whatever dynamics played out over this over this whole time period? Why are you trying to say that you have a relationship with somebody who's kind of not owning you to her other friends or dismissing yeah. you? Um, yeah. And so I think so there's some, I think, larger lessons to learn from that mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. It reminds me of this thing that I heard somebody um, bring up a, a while ago, and it was talking about um, Black Mormon women and feeling like if we are underrepresented in church community, but it kind of could relate to what we're talking about right now. And the person said, why ask for a seat at the table when the table was never made for me? Mm. And right. I, 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 I think that, you know, it, a lot of it has to do with who's going to, the acceptable is the person that's not going to rock the vault too much. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. LDS women identify with that. We will take mm-hmm. the person that will not rock the boat and turn it over. But the yeah. person that will come in the Doc Martens and is smoking weed or whatever, mm-hmm. um, 
just to use those kind of rebellious sort of um, mm-hmm. identifiers, that is the person we will we'll run away from, even if the person makes valid points about things that are going on, because mm-hmm. that person is challenging what makes people comfortable. That reminds mm-hmm. me of a, a quote I learned or read years ago by sociologist Carol Gilligan. Like, kind of, she's studying like why do like little girls are really really talkative and they get quieter and quieter often as they get older and like what's going on. And she was realizing like girls can either um, lose their voice and keep community or keep their voice and lose community. And I felt mm-hmm. that tension being a Mormon woman at church mm-hmm. over the years. Like, mm-hmm. what does it look like to like, am I towing the party line? Am I saying no? When am I standing up? When am I shrugging my shoulders? When am I playing nice and figuring out that space? Well, it's always this yeah. kind of this question of as a church and as a people, we always feel like we're, we're always on the outside and there's this notion of trying to seek legitimacy. And I think right. that seeking Susan B. Anthony's, her approval was a way of, seeking that legitimacy the same mm-hmm. way that maybe Mormons sought legitimacy through Mitt Romney or whatever. Right. If yeah. you can get somebody, if you can get somebody on the national stage or somebody um, on the outside, who's on the national stage to accept you, then that says something about the religion itself. And we're always fighting that, aren't we? Yeah. We and are yet at so, the same time struggling. With things. So go yeah, ahead, we're Heather. So, we're so ambivalent about being peculiar. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And yet at the same time, struggling with who we include and accept within our own ranks, right. still on that, you know, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, this, this was, was lots of fun. Yeah. And I love that. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Um, thank you so much, Andrea, for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for sharing your history knowledge with us and to our listeners. We get to know, um, like fun connections. I think it's easy to be excited as Mormons to be like, Ooh, a famous person knew us. So just like we just said, but kind of going a little deeper and figure out like, Mm -hmm. and I just love what you said about um, kind of your summary at the end, the, the like relationship aspect and like, which relationships are we seeking when like, maybe we don't need their validation anyway. Mm -hmm. So a bigger question for us to explore and think about Um, as a reminder, exponent two is a magazine. It's a, it's a podcast, uh-huh. magazine, blog, retreat. The retreat is coming up September 15th through 17th in New Hampshire. We hope you can come. Next week, we'll be hearing from Lacey Bagley, who's the keynote. So she's going to be on the podcast next. Um, but we invite you to donate. We are a 501c3. We do not have a million dollar endowment. We do not get paid by the church. So please help fund the revolution. Um, you can subscribe to the magazine. The blog is free. You can go ahead and um, subscribe to the blog. We would love for if you want to write for the magazine, write for the blog, volunteer for the magazine, volunteer for the blog, um, or just as with your 501c3, give us some money and make it a tax deduction. Anyway, have a great night and thank you all. End scene.